Help support the Candid Frame in bringing you awesome conversations with great photographers. You can do this by contributing as little as $2 a month to our Patreon campaign. That modest donation helps us to bring a quality show to you every week. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. This is Ibarian X, and this is the candid frame. While in Paris last month, I sat down with photojournalist Peter Turnley. He is a photographer who influenced the way we saw and remember some of the world's most historical events of the latter part of the 20th century. Whether it was the Gulf War, the Rwandan genocide, the Tiananmen Square crackdown, the release of Nelson Mandela, or the fall of the Berlin Wall, Peter Turnley was there with his camera. For over a decade, he was a photographer for Newsweek, and his images graced the cover of that publication 43 times. Peter's career was shaped not by some editor gracing him with a juicy assignment. More often than not, he would find the story on his own, and then he'd make sure he was there to photograph it. You know, it's interesting that in this day and age with email, there's probably a good chance I probably never would have gone anywhere because I never expected, I never accepted no for an answer. If, if after making a phone call, if it was something I really felt passionate about, if I called and, and there was some hesitation or let's talk about it later, I sometimes called four times a day. I just, I didn't give up mm-hmm. um, if it was something I really believed in. But when I would go and it was a beautiful opportunity. Um, and I, I am extremely grateful to the people that I worked with at Newsweek. It was an, an unbelievable opportunity that there was always this idea that film is cheap. I was never questioned how much film that I would use. And I always carried lots of film. And I was always very cognizant of, yes, I was going to fulfill to the, mo- the best of my ability the the role of trying to make a photograph that would communicate something significant about the story at hand. But I always use these opportunities to travel, to make photographs, to simply make photographs. His career, along with that of his twin brother David, began on the streets of Fort Wayne, Indiana. A football injury resulted in a stay at the hospital, where his parents gifted him with Henry Cartier-Bresson's classic book, The Decisive Moment. Those images opened his eyes to a world outside of the gridiron. His newfound passion and his curiosity led him and his brother to begin their first photographic project, focused on a local neighborhood on a short street called McClellan. I bought a camera and every night I began to to go to the, to drive to the essentially inner city of my hometown. I would park my car and I would get out and walk. And my world opened up overnight. I, I entered people's homes. I entered taverns, pool halls, churches. And very quickly, I found a voice. I, I found a way to talk with a, a camera. And I had a sense as well that I was maybe offering some people that, that didn't have a very loud voice a, a voice. And I would go home every night. And after dinner, I'd run down to the basement. I'd made a dark room. And I would de- develop the latest rule of film I'd made. And I'd come upstairs with these wet little postcard-sized work prints, and I'd, my family would be sitting at the dinner table, and I would show them something I had seen that day. And I'll never forget the, the gleam in their eyes and the, and the interactions and the conversation and a discussion about something I had seen that day. 
We'll talk to Peter about his long career and about revisiting his legacy of images, as well as discuss his street photography in Paris and Cuba. And later, I'll share my thoughts on a 2013 film starring Juliette Binoche that asks, what price are you willing to pay for an obsession? Welcome to The Candid Frame. Well, Peter, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's funny, this is the second time I've been in your vicinity. Um, first time was when the first time we were in Paris, and I was walk- we were walking to the Pompidou, and I'm walking, and I see a familiar face, and I look, and then I see the light on your chest, and then you walk past me, and it, I, my mind is a jumble, because I'm going, that's Peter Turnley. And by the time it registers, you're already gone. So it's nice to have a chance to sit with you properly and, and have a chance to, to chat here in your place. So Terrific. thank you for having me. My, my pleasure. Uh, I've been a fan of your work since I was in college. Um, when I was going to Berkeley, uh, you and your brother's work was, was really up in my radar during the uh, late 80s, early, early 90s. One of the things that impressed me even back, back then was uh, as much as I loved the work that you were doing at that time, I was really struck by the work that you did when you were a teenager on McClellan Street. Mm-hmm. It, it, it really uh, amazed me that someone that young who is you know, taking on this adventure of being a photographer and making photographs would explore like narrative not just taking pictures of, you know, cheerleaders and other things uh, that's, you know, pretty common for a teenager to photograph, but that you really were sort of exploring a community with a camera. And I was always very curious as to why you gravitated to doing that so early on in your explorations with photography. Well, thank you. Um, I have to say sometimes I look back at the photographs that I made with my brother when we were literally 16, 17 years old when we first began photography and the project that we did where we spent uh, a year photographing life on one three-block long street in in essentially the inner city of our hometown, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I'm even this many years later, I think about everything that might have gone into allowing me to have either thought or perceived or observed the things that we saw then and, um, and without any desire for pretension, I, I do look back at that early work and, and I'm a little bit blown away that we both had a, for two people that at that age probably weren't able to articulate verbally, orally very well a lot of our feelings, that I think we really saw a lot. And I think we were seeing a lot of, not just moments on the street um, and moments of this community that, that was there, but a lot of reference points that related to uh, the sociology and, and political and economic life of, of America at that time. And I, I think about these things a lot because I, I like to say that I, I never have really thought that photography is very much about cameras. I, cameras are a tool that I respect. And I think like in many ways, like great athletes, um, like Serena Williams that hits the ball against the wall six hours a day, or Stephen Curry that shoots baskets many hours a day, that I respect the tool. You have to. You have to know it. It has to be your friend. You wanna. You wanna be in a zone so that when it's time to hit a winner at Wimbledon, um, you're not thinking about your stroke. You're thinking about 
where you need to be on the court. You're looking at the ball and you're swinging into it. And I and I so I've always felt that I do respect the the tool, but at its core, I think photography is really about the verb to share. And I think the verb to share is an underused uh, verb in our in our vocabulary. In many ways, like the the word or the verb to love. I think it's one of the most beautiful th- beautiful things in our existence is the opportunity to share. And I think really photography is essentially about sharing our, our feelings, our perceptions, our observations about the world around us. And I think that if you want to really think about, and I want to preface that I don't feel like I have necessarily any advice to give anybody. I just, I always like to just tell my own story, but I always feel like understand better why it is that we choose to frame a moment and, and push a button because we want to hold on to a moment that we want to share with ourselves and our others for now and for all time, that it's really worth thinking about who you are as a person um, mm-hmm. or who you want to be as a person, not only who you are, but in many ways, I think photography can be as well about projecting a world that we might want to live in as well as the one where we do live. So in my case, growing up in the heartland of America in, in a very classic industrial city um, of Fort Wayne, Indiana, you know, I, my coming of age uh, was very much the late 60s. So anybody with an honest memory, I was 13 in 1968. But anyone with an honest memory would remember that if you were 19 in 1968, you probably didn't agree with the values of your parents. And it was a time of, of incredible questioning. Young people, I think, questioned everything. They questioned authority. Um, they questioned the basic institutions of our world, of, of uh, our economic life. Um, everything was up for grabs. Um, it was also it was the time of the Vietnam War. It was the, the civil rights movement was uh, very prominent, uh, beginning of feminism. Cartier-Bresson said that he thought that it was important to look at the world with a questioning gaze. And I always felt that the questioning everything was the most natural thing in the world for me. And photography at that early age, without a doubt, opened up my world. The only way that I knew how to express myself until that point was through sports. I was an obsessive athlete. I played every sport. I had a, a ligament tear when I was a junior in high school, and um, I was a linebacker. Had all this time on my hands after school that I'd never had before. My parents brought me a book of photographs by the great French photographer Cartier-Bresson. And lying in the hospital bed, I would never have dreamed of standing on the sideline and make a photograph of a game as opposed to being in the game. But I looked at Cartier-Bresson's photographs in this hospital bed and his vision informed me that there were all these moments I was walking by without paying attention. All these moments of poetry and magic and and, uh, marvel. And there was another thing that was probably fairly significant. Even though I'm from one of the most conservative states in the in the country politically, um, it happens that my family, my parents, uh, my whole family has always been very progressive politically. Uh, my father was very involved in the civil rights movement in the state of Indiana. And there were always, at almost every dinner or gathering of my family in my childhood, there was talk about the realities of American life and about the haves and have-nots. And without a doubt in my family, there was always uh, more passion for people that had too little than people that had too much. I went to a high school that was that was integrated racially by busing uh, in, I believe, 1971. And I, I, I went to one of the most mediocre high schools in the world. Uh, I, I, there would be nothing to brag about, to be honest, <laughs> about the sort of pedagogical level of my, mm-hmm. of my high school. But I always look back ironically and, and feel incredibly you know, grateful that the, the realities of my high school class really were an incredible reflection of the realities of American life across the board at, at 
this time. So my, my high school was, was very diverse. And as I said, I played on all sports teams. I had a very, a lot of close African-American friends in school and in my sports teams, but I had a sense of frustration that at the end of the day, I would go home to this kind of white middle-class suburb and my African-American friends would go home to the inner city of my hometown, which is a, was a city of about 175,000 people. And I had a sense in many ways, we really didn't know each other very well. Mm. So I bought a camera and every night I began to, to go to the, to drive to the essentially inner city of my hometown. I would park my car and I would get out and walk. And my world opened up overnight. I, I entered people's homes, I entered taverns, pool halls, churches. And very quickly I found a voice. I, I found a way to talk with a, a camera. And I had a sense as well that I was maybe offering some people that, that didn't have a very loud voice a, a voice. And I would go home every night and after dinner I'd run down to the basement, I'd made a dark room and I would de develop the latest roll of film I'd made. And I'd come upstairs with these wet little postcard sized work prints and I'd, my family would be sitting at the dinner table and I would show them something I had seen that day. And I'll never forget the, the gleam in their eyes and the, and the interactions and the conversation and a discussion about something I had seen that day. In many ways, you know, I went on later in my professional life to have 43 covers of Newsweek. Um, and every time I would have a cover of Newsweek, I would know that on a Monday morning, 30 million people around the world would have seen one of my images. But in some ways, maybe it's never been more joy joyful for me than those early days of just sharing with my family something mm -hmm. I saw. And my brother and I, there was another aspect of the work we did on McCollin Street. Um, I have to give credit to Bruce, Bruce Davidson. We came across the book that he did, uh, East 100th Street. I, and I believe he made that book in 1968. And we came across that book, that world of, of New York um, and Spanish Harlem, um, East 100th Street was a world that I definitely didn't know. I, I, was, I had never been on an airplane when I first saw that book. I remember being so, so moved by the, the human beauty and richness and complexity and, 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 po and poetry that he had found on one street in one unit of space. So in 1972, um, one of the two of us, of my twin brother and I, um, and my twin, my twin brother David caught the bug of the joy of photography very quickly after I did. He, he began to make pictures, I think, within you know probably a month or two after I did. And one, one summer day, one of us had won a National Scholastic uh, high school photography competition. And, and the only way you could get the prize was to get a model release of this guy in the picture. We tracked this guy down to a street called McClellan Street, which was a three block long street right behind the Greyhound bus station in, in my hometown. It was essentially a very working class, white Appalachian uh, Mexican immigrant street. Mm -hmm. uh, every house had about four different apartments within it. Um, every house had a porch on the, on the street uh, in front of it. And that day we, we met this guy that was one of us had photographed a man on a park bench and had won this prize. And so we tracked him down to get a model release so we could pick up this prize. And, and as we were talking to this guy who lived on McCollin Street, he was sitting on a porch. We noticed that even though the street was, was relatively poor and um, the, the dwellings of the homes were, you know, the conditions looked quite rough in many ways, but there were so many people, so many kids playing on the street. There were people sitting on porches. Everybody was yelling back and forth to each other. And we were really struck by a sense of community. So we looked at each other and we said that day, why don't we spend a year photographing life on this street? 
And we did. And we, we in the beginning, we only had one camera. Um, we would go many times a week after school on weekends. We would always take people back these little work prints of pictures we'd made. So very quickly, everybody on the street looked forward to seeing us because they knew they were going to get a photograph mm -hmm. when we came back. And I'm kind of proud that at the end of a year, almost every family on the street had essentially a family album of pictures we had made. And often while one of us was photographing, because we only had one camera in the very beginning, the other would be babysitting for people's kids. Or The doors of the, house, of the street just opened for us. We could walk into almost any home on the street. There was one family in particular, uh, a family of Mexican immigrants named Garcia. They were some of the most beautiful people I've ever met in my life. They were a fan, an extended family of about 12. But if there was food for 12, there was always food for 14. And we could sit mm -hmm. down at their you know, lunch or dinner table anytime, and they would offer us food, and we would babysit for their kids. One thing I want to mention that's amazing about photography is that's not thought about, I don't think, often enough, is the role of time. So... After this year on McCollin Street, both David and I began college at the University of Michigan. And I think when we were 19, I had a, another injury from continuing to play football. And, and David was elected. He, um, he, we had made 50 prints. We, the, the project was literally 29 rolls of film over a period of a year. And we'd made these very rudimentary contact sheets and we'd make prints. And so we, we chose 50 images from the street and made very good prints of these 50 images. And David decided to get on a plane, and, and this was 1972, and, and fly to New York. Neither of us had ever been on a plane before. And, and uh, so he took these, this box of 50 prints from McCollin Street, flew to New York, and the first thing he did was to go to the office of Magnum. And he walked into the office of Magnum, and he asked the receptionist if uh, he introduced himself, said he was David Turnley from Fort Wayne, Indiana, wanted to know if somebody could look at our photographs. And the receptionist said, well, we don't do that kind of thing. If you want to drop off your portfolio, um, come back in three days, uh, you're welcome to do so. And if somebody has time to look at your pictures, um, they will. And my brother looked around the room and he saw a chair and he said, well, you know, if it's all the same to you, I don't have a single other thing to do today. I'll just sit down and if somebody has any time to look at our pictures, that would be great. And if they don't, that's okay too. Mm. So my brother sat down and uh, or the guy said, suit yourself. My brother sat down and... Within about five minutes, uh, the then director of Magnum, Lee Jones, walked up and said, okay, show me, come into my office and show me what you've got. And David showed her these photographs of McClellan Street. And apparently she, she saw something about a part of the country that she didn't know a lot about that, that really spoke to her. And she picked up the phone and it was unbelievable. She called the who's who of photography of New York. Um, she, she called uh, John Sarkowski at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, Cornell Cap at the ICP, John Morris, who was the photographer of the New York Times, I believe, Andre Kertes, I think maybe Bruce Davidson. And David, at the age of 19, went to meet all these people. <laughs> and uh, John Morris, who was the photographer of the New York Times, also really took an interest in, in this work and, and, and the two of us. And, and he wanted to make sure that this work was seen and published. So he worked as an agent to get the, I believe, a 20-page story published in a, a spring off of popular photography magazine called 35mm Photography. And I think we had like a 20-page spread with a long article. And this was wonderful for two 19-year-olds to think that something we had done had this kind of meaning and would be seen. And, and I mention this because... A lot of time went by after that publication, and it helped really spring our, our kind of young careers and um, give us a sense that we were on the right path. So a lot of years went by, I think it was about uh, seven or eight years ago, I suddenly began to think that, 
you know, maybe there were pictures besides these 50 that we hadn't printed that had meaning. So I went back now 35 years later, I made a print of every single negative of 29 rolls of film. So I think it was somewhere in the, I don't know the math, but it was a little more than a thousand. And uh, David and I went through these thousand images and we made a selection of, I believe a little over a hundred. Ironically, well, interestingly, I wouldn't even say ironically, 80% of the images that we selected 35 years later, we had never even printed. Wow. And the thing that I think is significant about that is this role of time in photography that, that sometimes it takes a lot of time to realize that you saw what you saw. You needed to mm -hmm. see something to make the photograph, but we don't always realize that we saw what we saw until time goes by. And the other thing that I think is really interesting is that we all evolve as human beings. And 35 years later, I wasn't the same person that I was when I was 16, 17. I'd gone through a professional life, lived overseas for many years. I'd been married, divorced, um, had my own ups and downs. And I'm sure that I could relate to things that I'd seen as a 17-year-old in a different way than I did when I was 17. Um, and, and so I think it's actually, um, I love this aspect of time in photography. It's, it's really interesting when you have the chance to revisit stuff that you did years ago, because I've been doing something similar from stuff I did 25 years ago. And at, at first, I was reticent to revisit some of those photographs, largely shot on Kodachrome. Um, and images I hadn't really seen since I'd shot them, thinking that, oh, they're all going to be crap. And I was surprised at how good some of the images were, even though I didn't have sort of the wherewithal to be able to explain at the time why they would have been a good image. There was something instinctual or innate that allowed me to, to see it and recognize it in, in ways that I could easily describe today, you know, 20, 25 years later. But at the time was completely impulsive. I was just reacting, made a photograph, liked it, and just moved on. So what you're, what you're describing, I completely, completely relate to. I think it also touches on a theme that is um, one of the most unspoken about themes of, of visual communication, visual storytelling, and that is the whole process of selecting and editing photographs. And, there, and that brings me to another theme that I'm somewhat passionate about. You know, as I go through life, almost anyone has that you will encounter has likely at some time in their life had a, a class in creative writing. Probably most people have had a somewhat of a sophisticating class in, 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 in creative writing. And most people would, you know, have a sense of a notion of points of punctuation, grammar, a flow, narrative. Um, but I wonder how many people have ever had a class in seeing uh, not photography, but seeing yeah. and using this God-given God gift, given gift of, of sight. I don't think many people, and, and you know, I always like to say that there's not a thing any of us do in our life that isn't influenced by our powers of perception and observation. And observation and, and sight and, and seeing has just brought so much meaning to my life. But the, the, the thing that I think that I think is really underexplored is the whole process of of selecting photographs, not just not not simply making a photograph, not the process of making a photograph, but going back later and selecting photographs that and and putting them together in groupings, creating a narrative or a poem or some form of a body of communication that 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 works as a, a body of work. Well, well, let's talk about let's let's explore that whole idea because the the great majority of your career was 18 years at Newsweek. Um, a lot of spot news in terms of conflict and you know world events and in which the images that you had to deliver to the magazine revolved largely around whatever story was sort of being told 
and that you had to relatively quickly turn the, turn the stuff around and get images to them. So your relationship to the photographs um, was, would prob- was probably much different than it would be when you revisited those images much, much later. So how did the fact that you, know, you were basically on assignment and had to turn, or, turn around and give and provide a single or a collection of images that told a particular story, how did that influence the way that you saw? Well, I would like to start by saying that actually, I think the particularly, I would speak, can only speak in my case, and I think each person comes at this in a different way, but I think the, the life experience that I've had um, in photojournalism is quite different than what people assume or expect. I had one great fortune, but I will say that I also was used an incredible amount of determination and energy to, to craft the opportunity in the way that I'm going to explain. But first of all, during the 18 years that I I was working on contract for Newsweek, it almost never happened that someone called me and said, "Turn Lee, go here or there." Um, I was never dispatched. The, I, I, I was based in Paris, and the idea really was that I would do my own analysis of what was the biggest news story in the world every week. And I would figure out if I could get there, how to get there. I would never make a phone call to an editor to propose going anywhere unless I had already done the research of knowing how I could get there with a plane, a visa, how I could get film back. But I gave, I, I would wake up every day, read four newspapers, listen to the BBC World Service every hour in the hour. I had done a a degree in international relations at a very elite school of political science. Um, and I'd studied world history and, and geopolitics. And I was always very proud that I think that my knowledge of world history and geopolitics really helped me have a nose for news and, and understanding major geopolitical stories as they unfolded. And I would, I would make a call and I, and you know, it's interesting that in this day and age with email, there's probably a good chance I probably would never would have gone anywhere because I never expected, I never accepted no for an answer. If, if after making a phone call, if it was something I really felt passionate about, if I called and, and there was some hesitation or let's talk about it later, I sometimes called four times a day. I just, I didn't give up um, mm-hmm. if it was something I really believed in. But when I would go and it was a beautiful opportunity, um, and I, I am extremely grateful to the people that I worked with at Newsweek. It was an, an unbelievable opportunity that there was always this idea that film is cheap. I was never questioned how much film that I would use, and I always carried lots of film. And I was always very cognizant of, yes, I was going to fulfill to the, mo- the best of my ability, the, the role of trying to make a photograph that would communicate something significant about the story at hand. But I always use these opportunities to travel, to make photographs, to simply make photographs. Mm-hmm. And I, I, these weren't most often short-term stories. Um, and that's another sort of misnomer. I covered regional stories for years and years. I spent, I spent from 1986 to 2001 covering the the life in, in, in the former Soviet Union and in Russia. I made hundreds of trips to Russia and the Soviet Union. I worked from 1988 to 2000 covering the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, I worked, I made hundreds of trips to Israel and, and um, Israel's occupied territories during that time. I covered all the revolutions in Eastern Europe in 1989 and all the evolution of Eastern Europe over a long period of time. The plight of refugees worldwide was a theme that I was always very passionate about. And wherever I went, I, I, I was very cognizant of this opportunity to make photographs. And whether they were published in Newsweek or not, I created a body of work. 
and I was very fortunate that I owned the rights to, to all of my work. It was a contractual uh, relationship. So I have every single photograph I've ever made. And, and what's very exciting to me is that this many years later, I'm st I still feel that one of the most exciting and one of the most important aspects of my life right now is, is not only continuing to make significant photographs, but to be going back and cultivating and harvesting the work that I did, often knowing very well that it wasn't going to be published that week or at any point in Newsweek, but pictures that existed. And I'm, and I'm proud of, of having made really good use of, of that time and work. It also brings me to another point that I think is, is very uh, important for all photographers. You know, I, I have a sense that I would be willing to bet that if you would speak to almost any photographer, uh, I don't care who they are, and I don't care how well-known they are, that there would be a large number of, of photographers that would tell you that they don't think that people really know them completely for the work that they've done. You know, I feel grateful that I, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I have no idea how well I'm known or not. And, and in many ways, I'll be honest, it doesn't matter that much to me. I do have a sense that some people know something about the work that I've done. But I actually have a strong sense that there's a lot of the work I've done that people have done that people don't know. And I think one of our biggest challenges um, is not simply the, the making of photographs. It's, it's, it's the ongoing energy of making sure that we continue to have work seen and, and, and harvest bodies of work. I've always conceived of photography as a stairway. Every single photograph is a, is, is a step up a stairway to somewhere higher. I, I, I had the great fortune of, I was the assistant to the sort of all-time great Paris photographer, Robert Doineau. And working with Doineau, who, you know, is quintessentially known as, as the tender, humoristic, affectionate photographer of Paris life. You know, people know that vision. What they don't know about Doineau is what I would see working as his assistant was that he was so organized because he really understood the role of of time and, and this notion of, of being able to find one's work over time in order to share it. And when I worked with Duaneau, he could find any negative he had ever made. I mean, I would see, he would get phone calls for people that wanted a photograph, um, to publish a photograph he'd made in 1936. And we're talking about 1980. And he could find the negative in 30 seconds. And the result of that is that, you know, this whole body of work to this day, he, he passed. Um, his his daughters now um, manage uh, and and his his estate, and there are at least two books published every year of his work. And it's like a it's like the ripples of an ocean. They just mm -hmm. continue. The waves just continue to go out and touch more and more and more people. And that's because he was so wonderfully organized. And I think that's another really sort of unspoken about and unthought about process. I. I feel like I'm pretty well organized, but I'm working, continue to work really hard to, to organize my archive. I have, an ar I have now an ar archive of, I guess, 40, well, I began making photographs in 1971, so however many years that is, but it's about 50 years now. But, but I, I have, aside from continuing to photograph very avidly um, on long-term projects, I'm, I've been working now um, for the last seven years in Cuba, um, and I've been working for the last almost 43 years in France, in Paris. Um, but I have many projects that I'm, I'm cultivating right now. 
I, ahead of me, I, I see a book I photographed, as I mentioned, 15 years of the end of the Soviet Union and, and the end of communism in the Soviet Union and, and what became Russia. Um, and that was a really visually um, unique time. There were all these incredible uh, visual references to, to the ideology of, of Soviet life that don't exist today. So I, I look forward to harvesting a, a, a book of that work at some point. There have been a lot of changes recently to the show, some of which you've already heard over the past few weeks. We're using a new service to conduct our remote interviews to provide better audio quality. We've just finished building a studio where I'm now producing and recording the show. We've also started a newsletter and have begun work on a series of ebooks that are going to be released throughout the coming year and a whole lot more. I've been producing this show now for almost 13 years, but it's always been a side project. I think I just lack the confidence that I could really make this my life's work. Well, this year, I decided to go all in. I'm leaving a lot of things behind, and well, I'm just going to finally see what I can make happen. But I could really do with your help. If I could get 100 of you to become new supporters of our Patreon campaign, it would help tremendously. Just $5 a month, the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee from Starbucks, would help more than you can imagine. We don't have regular advertisers, and it's, it's really been donations and regular contributions that have helped us meet expenses and help to improve this show over the years. It's really people like you that have made all the difference. I know you've been thinking about it, but why not do it today? You can do that by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. And even if it's not possible to give a recurring contribution, consider making a one time donation or, or buying one of our ebooks. No contribution is so small that it isn't appreciated or makes a difference. And whether you've been listening since episode one or just discovered us, thank you for just downloading us each week and making the show and me a part of your lives. It, it must be interesting to revisit a significant body of work that you produced over decades, while at the same time still producing current work. And does the fact that you are actively looking at the images that you've produced over the 20, 30, 30 plus years, what influence does that does that have, if any, when it comes to the way you're, you're shooting and exploring Cuba or Paris? Wonderful question. One of the reasons why I really, I almost never talk about cameras and f-stops and ISO and this or Leica or Nikon or Sony. I mean, photographers love that stuff. And, and um, you know, writers never talk about their big pens or their laptops. They, they talk about the ideas they write about. And I think we somewhat diminish ourselves as a community by, by spending so much time talking about equipment. I also think there's language that the photography community uses that really diminishes ourselves. You'll never hear me say that I shot a photograph. I, I hate guns. Guns kill. I've been around a lot of guns. Too many. I don't take photographs. I, I, when I walk around, I carry a a business card. I always give a card to people these days and tell them, send me an email and I send them photographs. I, I, I think it's a creation. It's a gift. We make photographs um, and, 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 and on and on. And I think that 
to your to your question, one of the reasons I don't really like to talk about cameras is that I don't think it's really that significant in terms of what happens when we make a photograph. I think I think it's all about who we are as a person. And I think it's also about just like I like analogies with a lot of athletics. You know, when the Lakers are down by one and there's two seconds on the clock and they, they take a timeout, four players in the huddle are scared to death they're going to get the ball. Kobe Bryant <laughs> is dying to get the ball. He lives to make the winning basket. And that's what's determined. It's all about spirit. And it's the same with photography. It's, you know, you can you can go out and have a bad moment. Maybe you're not seeing anything. Maybe somebody might make a stinging comment about not wanting to be photographed, et cetera. And, and you can decide that didn't feel good and want to go back, put your cameras down and sit down or take a nap. Or you can just let it roll off your back or you can imagine a Teflon pan and and just move on, just like, you know, when you get clocked on the football field and you get yourself back up and get in the game. And if you do that, there's a really good chance that five minutes later, you're gonna have one of the most beautiful moments of your life. So it's all about spirit. And um, one of the things that I think about all the time is that, and, and I think it's each to their, each to their own. I, I have no, as I say, I have no advice to give anybody. And I, I don't like to talk about how people should be making photographs. I think they should be doing what they want. It's, it's each of our own personal expression. I don't think there are many rights or wrongs about that. In my case, I don't have a sense of being very concerned about something having already been done. I think I think I don't feel as well that we have to reinvent the wheel. I think life is pretty amazing. It's pretty magical if we just Edward Bouba, the great French photographer, leaned over one day and he whispered in my ear, said, Peter, let me tell you a secret. If you keep your eyes and your your heart open, there's a gift waiting for you at the and your head up, there's a gift waiting for you at the corner of every street. And I still really believe that. For example, I I have been photographing life in Paris now for fifty years. I think there's a lot of people that have this sense that, well, Paris has been photographed by the great humanistic photographers, and they were almost all my friends. I, I had the great fortune of knowing Cartier-Bresson, Willie Ronis, Duano, Edward Bouba. They were all close friends of mine, and they all influenced me a lot. But I don't have a sense that because one of them might have photographed someone kissing, for example, 50 years ago, that, that I, don't, I wouldn't look at a moment like that today. I believe that there are themes that are eternal and, and universal. And I, I think, and, and time changes and, and our world changes, but we keep coming back to, I believe, certain core values of life, of, of, of brotherhood, sisterhood, of love, of anger, of life, of birth, death, happiness, joy, sensuality, light. And I, I'm just very determined um, to continue to explore it and, and share it as powerfully as I can. One of the things that I was thinking about when looking at your work is that many of us live our lives within a certain range of extremes of pain through through joy, right? And especially if you're, you know, in born and raised in a first world country, um, the extremes of that are fairly can be pretty limited. But in your role as a photographer, you've seen huge disparities between people being their absolute worst killing, destroying each other, to moments of absolute bliss and joy. And I'm curious to know how being sort of a first person witness to that has influenced the way, not just the way you see and how you make photographs, but how you experience your own life. Beautiful question. Um, I had a, 
a major retrospective exhibition at Cuba's Museum of Modern Art a year and a half ago in Havana. I was the first, I had great honor. I was the first American artist of any kind to receive a major exhibition at Cuba's most important museum. And the exhibition was called Moments of the Human Condition. And the title of the exhibition represented my, how I look at the world, that, that my vision of the world is that life is this kind of timeline. On the one hand, um, of extreme, you would have life uh, at its most beautiful, tender, affectionate, loving, poetic, sensual, and kind. On the other end of the spectrum, you would have life that would involve hardship, oppression, racism, conflict, war, death, and, and, and great sadness and, and unfairness. And then everything in between. And the everything in between is also extremely important. And that's really how I view the world. I'm kind of proud that um, I've never wanted to be cubbyholed as a, you know, I think in this photographic world, people love to compartmentalize photographers. Um, they're, they're photojournalists or they're street photographers or they're fashion photographers or they're conceptual photographers. For me, it's all photography. It's all about touching the soul and the heart with, with something that, that has meaning. And that meaning comes very often from light, form, composition, but more than anything, most often some form of humanity. And, and so I'm sort of proud that I've, I, I don't believe that I've allowed myself to be cubbyholed in that way. I have photographed the whole spectrum of life and I continue to do so. I have seen things that leave definitely deep scars on, on one's existence, on the heart. I wouldn't want to be Pollyannish about that. I, I've probably, I've photographed almost every war in the world in the last 30 years. I've photographed uh, almost all of the major refugee populations of the world. I was photographed major famines in Somalia, earthquakes in Iran, Iraq, uh, Armenia. Um, I spent the night of 9-11 um, in the rubble of Ground Zero. Um, and, um, I've seen, unfortunately, more death and hardship than any one human being should ever have had to see. And yes, it has left great traces on my, on my heart. I saw military hardware enter Tiananmen Square in China and crush the inspired uh, desire of a group of several million Chinese students that wanted simply a more democratic, free life. Um, and moments like that really set me back. But what isn't necessarily intuitive is that in the moments, uh, moments of great hardship, I've also seen incredible moments of human decency and courage and, and honesty and, and perseverance. Um, I've seen great groups of people hold hands together in, in the Velvet Revolution in Prague um, with, with no means holding hands together and raising up their, their hands and, and, and together fighting for, for freedom. I saw um, black South Africans for years stand up and, and struggle against the inhuman regime of apartheid and, and prevail. And I, one of the most amazing moments of my life was to be present to photograph Nelson Mandela when he walked out of 27 years of incarceration. And his example has lifted my life. I've had the incredible chance to touch upon the the, the charisma and the humanity of some of the greatest people that are known, people like Muhammad Ali and Obama, Barack Obama, um, Gorbachev, uh, Lech Wałęsa in Poland, Nelson Mandela, Winnie Mandela, Aretha Franklin, and I could go on and on. And then I've met so many people. I continue as recent as probably this morning, uh, 
I meet people every single day in my life that somehow lift my heart with their example. Um, so I, I'm extremely troubled by this moment in time. On one level, I'm really sad that uh, I was born in America. I've now lived in France since 1975. I, I split time now between New York and France and, and Cuba, I would say. Um, uh, the country of my origin, America, is, is, I don't feel only American. I really feel like a citizen of the world. I actually, I, I feel quite attached to France and the values of French culture and life. Um, I don't let myself be defined by my, my childhood passport. Um, I'm, 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 I've been extremely, like so many of us, um, just so saddened by this moment in American life with, with Trump as president. Um, and I, it's not only Trump, Trump is who he is. Um, there's not a lot new about that. Um, so many people are aware of, of his incredible shortcomings, but I'm actually so saddened that there would be enough people in the country that would support a man like this and his policies and his, his ignorance and his small-minded, um, just literally smallness uh, of, of vision of the world. So what do I do with, with that kind of uh, sadness? Um, well, I don't have a great answer. Um, it's tough. It's challenging. But I do believe that I was given the great fortune of being present when South Africans stood up after generations of apartheid and said no and, 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 and created a, a better world for themselves. When East Germans stood up and, and, and tore the wall down in, in, in Germany, when Romanians and uh, people all over Eastern Europe stood up in 1989 um, to ask for a better life uh, under incredibly hard conditions. Um, when youthful Chinese um, stood up against an oppressive regime and, and, and tried to make change. So I, I believe that it's, in, and, and the example of the civil rights movement in America, um, of, of so many people that, that with, with grace and determination and perseverance and spirit and heart resisted um, what, what is wrong. So um, who would I be to stop at this time? I'm not going to stop. I, I believe we have a, 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 a bright future. I think also a sort of a sense of perception of history uh, allows me to think that there are better days ahead. You've, as you just mentioned, you've been witness to some very dramatic historical moments. But has, is there a a moment that was probably a quieter one that may have not ended up, you know, on the pages of a newspaper or, or a magazine that you're grateful that you experienced and that you wouldn't have experienced had it not been for your use of the camera? Oh, that's a wonderful question. And, and it's the answer is in what fuels my existence. Um, and it happens, as I mentioned, literally almost every day. But I'll give you an example of something that happens all the time that's so difficult to explain. And I don't think it's formulaic. I don't think it has anything to do with, as most definitely has nothing to do with a camera. It has nothing to do with photography. I've been doing a long-term project now um, for the last two years on a particular barrio neighborhood of Havana called Pogoloti. Pogoloti has the title given by Fidel as the, the first working class barrio of Cuba. And it's a very working class, poor neighborhood of Havana. Most people would go to this neighborhood and 
and they would go through it and not see anything, um, not see any interest. The streets are very thin, homes are right next to each other. But like McClellan Street, my hometown, I have found such a sense of community and life in the streets of this community. So I'm, I'm doing a long-term project in Pogoloti, and I, and I am really grateful that I've become a part of the community. Um, people know me, um, and, and I'm very accepted in this, in this neighborhood. Um, it's a mostly black neighborhood of Havana. Only about uh, a month ago, um, I was walking down the street one day. I saw a, a gentleman sitting on a ledge by himself. He was wearing um, a sort of sleeveless t-shirt and he had this sort of casquette hat on. Um, what struck me is that he, first he looked like a beautiful man, but he, he looked tired. He looked like life had been hard, but I was drawn to him and it was a very quiet moment. And I think, quite honestly, I think it's a, a person that most people walk by every day and never notice. And I walked up to this guy and, um, and I didn't say a word. I just looked him in the eye, calmly with a smile. But I looked him in the eye and we acknowledged each other and that was it, nothing was said. And I continued to look him in the eye and I, I, made, I began to make photographs. And I, I stayed with this moment for Probably 20 minutes. Not, never, not a single word was said. I do speak Spanish, but, but we didn't talk. I might have said hello, but that was about it. And I continued to explore this moment visually. I was, and, and, and it was beautiful in the quiet of this moment how he allowed me so lovingly into his space. I kept exploring how I could see this moment in a different way. I kept, I, there was always this connection with his eyes. And then suddenly a woman came out of the house um, and, and she walked up to this man and, and, I, and I included her in my photograph and, and I continued to make photographs. And she walked around this, this scene to the other side of the man and suddenly she put her head on his shoulder and they both looked at me and I, this was after about 20 minutes, I made a photograph. And this photograph is a, is a photograph I love. I, and, and, to me, it's a, uh, these are two people that are, for me, heroes that no one's ever heard of or will ever see before. And I think that what this moment was really a lot about was what can happen with two, when two sets of eyes, and more importantly, when two sets of hearts interact with each other. There's something that you can't put your finger on very well, and it's not a formula. You can't teach it, um, because if it's not authentic, it doesn't exist. But there's this passage between two sets of eyes when someone feels honored, when someone feels like you've taken the time to notice them, to care about them, to pay attention to them, that they will allow you a, a, a glimpse at their soul and at their existence. And, 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 and this connection is something that I'm not afraid to call it a moment of love. It, it, it's powerful. Um, and, and it turned out after I made this photograph, I, I spoke to the, this, this couple and, and they were brother and sister. And they, the, the gentleman um, was 54 years old and his sister was 53. They'd lived their whole life in the same house together. Um, but there, there, there's something about this moment of the two of them together. We don't have the image you know, right here, but in the image, I do believe that, it, that, some, that something is powerful that is said in this by this photograph um and it's a very quiet moment and it and it would never end up on the front page of any newspaper but this is maybe 
you know, I've been making some photographs on on a certain level. They're not the photographs that probably, if anyone knows my name, maybe that they've seen much of before, um, because they're not connected to world news stories. They're not connected to, you know, a, a, a headline or a front page news story. But I have been making photographs like this for a long time, and um, and 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 these moments of connection um, and beauty that we can discover. See, I like to say often that. The difference between a photograph and a snapshot. A snapshot, and I don't really care about this, but, and some snapshots can be interesting, of course, but a snapshot is, in many ways, is when a person looks at a camera. A photograph is when someone lets you look into their world, and that's, that's a gift. Mm. And those gifts happen all the time, if you just allow them to take place. I love how you describe your process of making photographs, like in this case of this fellow and his sister in Cuba, that it wasn't, oh, I made a portrait of this guy. You photographed a moment. And you've been mentioning time throughout our whole conversation, but I think that that is really at the heart of what you're always on the hunt for, what you're always looking for, what you're always responding to are these moments that play out in front of you. And you you trying to find a way to not just memorialize that, but to express something of what you felt in the photograph. And that's, like, I think, the greatest challenge that any photographer can face. Because mm -hmm. it's easy to make, like you just said, a snapshot, it's an altogether th different thing to communicate, as you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, something about the experience. I, to this day, I still feel, um, and again, I, I have no judgment or advice to give anyone. I, I think people should, should follow their hearts and their own ideas with photography, and that's what makes this uh, an interesting world, is people see the world in a lot of different ways. To this day, I still feel that that there, there's, that it's very important that there be some human connection that's made in a photograph, that, that there's a moment that moves the heart, where, and, and that often involves emotion, but it, it most definitely almost always involves some form of connection. Um, and it's not generally something that's, that happens really fast. Um, it, requires, uh, it requires a little bit of time and patience and love. Um, yeah. And I think we are living in a world today that has really sped up. Everything has sped up um, in every way. Everybody has a phone. Everybody's on their, they're texting, they're, they're emailing, they're, and, and, and it's actually, as we all know, it's what I'm, you know, saying this is even trite at this point. Um, you know, it's really sad. I, I was in a cafe here in Paris um, last week uh, in, in a back room having lunch, and there was a young woman sitting by herself in this beautiful cafe, she never raised her head from her smartphone for 45 minutes. Um, and, and I thought, what, you know, this is so sad that, that uh, we all spend so much time these days when there's all this life around us, if we can connect to each other. Um, and, and, and I'm grateful that I, I keep trying to connect all the time, every day. Um, and I have been spending a lot of time in Cuba um, in the last several years. Um, Cuba is a really interesting theme for me. I look back at my childhood, you know, it's interesting. Um, my childhood was overall, you know, fairly happy. Um, it wasn't perfect like anybody, but it was fairly happy. Um, and, um, you know, I always remember in about 19, when I was about six years old, uh, which was exactly the time of the Cuban Revolution, you know, spending Sunday nights sitting with my family and my grandparents, watching a black and white television, watching the Jackie Gleason show every Sunday night. And we were together and there was, 
It was beautiful. It was, uh, I, I look back at moments like that with great nostalgia of us all being together, enjoying a show on a, a black and white television. And um, so much of life in Cuba, you know, because of the revolution, a lot of, a lot of life, it didn't stop, but a lot of the visual remnants of life, um, you know, still date back to those days mm -hmm. with cars and, and economic life, a lot of the visual life, uh, buildings. Um, there is, life in, in Cuba is changing uh, very quickly, but unlike most places in the West, there isn't this ubiquitous use of a cell phone and, and texting and emailing. People, people sit on doorsteps and talk to each other. People sit in living rooms and talk to each other. People dance in the street. Um, they listen to music and they, there's so much joy and so much, so much life that doesn't involve something that's material, something that you don't need, you don't have to buy it in a store. It's, it's there for all of us. And, and I, I learned so many beautiful life's, lessons of life in Cuba. Um, and I suppose maybe I need that. You know, you asked me earlier about, you know, what all the things I've seen have done for me. Um, I don't only live for photography. I love photography, but I really live for life. And I hope my photographs communicate life. And I want to continue, and I hope they will continue to touch people's lives as, as much as possible. Um, but, but Cuba has offered me, um, in a way that I'm incredibly grateful, uh, so many daily lessons of life. And we need that. I need that. It's very selfish on my part. I, a lot of the, the time I spend in Cuba is because I, I literally love it there. There are things, you know, wherever you go in the world, um, there are issues and problems. Um, Cuba's not different. Uh, but that would be true in my country of origin. It would be true here in France. It would be true anywhere you go. Um, but there are so many things that are wonderful in Cuba and, and some of the most beautiful people on earth. Hmm. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend one photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer That's be and why? That's another beautiful question. Um, I could come up with a, a long list of names, um, but I have a feeling that, but that many of the names would be names that some of your listeners already know. I think a name that maybe some of your listeners know, but is underknown and should be known much more is the name of Edouard Bouba, the great French photographer. Um, his name is, is, is spelled B-O-U-B-A-T. Um, and Bouba, people called him a, a, a peace correspondent, not a war correspondent, but a peace correspondent. He, and, and with his camera, um, he, he was just a very beautiful man and his images are incredibly lyrical, human, poetic, elegant, graceful, full of love and tenderness and flow and humanity. And uh, he happened to be one of my best friends. He passed um, several years ago, but for the last 10 years of his life, we would see each other many times a week um, for a glass of wine in the afternoon. We would talk about life. We wouldn't mm -hmm. talk about photography. I don't remember almost ever talking about photography with Edouard, but we would always talk about life. We would put a theme out on the table. There was a third friend of ours named Bernard, who was a French philosopher, a wonderful man who also passed a few years ago. We'd meet for an afternoon glass of wine, um, and we'd put a theme on the table. It'd be a real ballpark theme. Like we'd say, okay, today we're gonna talk about love. We're gonna talk about friendship. We're gonna talk about romance. We're gonna talk about anger. We're gonna talk about war. And then we'd talk about it for about an hour. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Edouard Bouba was, in my mind, one of the world's greatest photographers, and I would encourage anyone to know his work. Well, thank you for that recommendation, and thank you so much for your time, Peter. Thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk to me. Each week, we have a segment on the show where I share thoughts, ideas, and memories 
that may or may not involve photography. We call it The Last Frame. I love movies. After a long week, I can think of nothing better than sitting down on my couch with the lights down, a blanket thrown over my lap, and maybe even a glass of wine, and watching a really good film. The phone is off. I'm not responding to emails or texts. I'm just ready for the next few hours to just get lost in a story. Some of these films are fantastic cinema, while others, I admit, are just stupid and entertaining. But whatever mood I'm in, there's a pleasure I take from having someone tell me a story. Now, when the story revolves around a photographer or photography, my curiosity is always piqued. I think Hollywood, though, often gets it wrong. I mean, in so many movies where the protagonist is a photographer or a photojournalist, their career has little to do with the characterization or the plot. It's, it's like the writer thought, ooh, what kind of cool career could I give this character? I know, I'll make him or her a photographer. So you get the obligatory scene with said photographer with an expensive camera making images in a studio. But other than that, the photography really has nothing to do with the narrative. It's just background business. But then there are films that really nail it, especially with respect to photojournalists. Two films that immediately come to mind are Salvador and Under Fire. Two films that tell stories of gruff, dedicated photojournalists covering conflicts in Central America. Salvador stars James Woods, and Under Fire stars Nick Nolte. Both films are political thriller dramas that show these photojournalists attempting to tell a gripping story in the face not only of oppressive violence in Central America, but also the bureaucracies of both governments and the newsroom. These flawed characters, through the force of their own will, push through those challenges and their own personal failings to discover the truth of their circumstances and something about themselves. And as good as both of these films are, the characterizations of both of these photographers are rooted in the Hollywood myth of the American loner, that solitary male figure whose singular obsession with justice, truth, or even revenge becomes more important than anything else, even family. These characters often have a tenuous relationship with loved ones, their relationships are either estranged, hanging by a thread, or don't exist at all. All that matters is the obsession. Alex Pope's 1,000 Times Goodnight is a 2013 film that focuses on one such photographer and how her obsession to photograph war and conflict impacts the family she leaves behind. In it, the always amazing Juliette Binoche plays Rebecca a world-renowned photojournalist who is nearly killed when embedded with a terrorist group in Kabul, Afghanistan. The opening scenes reveal her dressed in a burqa, photographing women who are preparing one of their own for a suicide bombing. As the scenes play out and you slowly realize what is happening, you feel an amazing amount of tension and anxiety, and you begin to wonder what kind of person would put themselves in this kind of situation. And when she returns home to her husband and two daughters to recover, it's that very question that inspires the conflict between her and her husband, Marcus, played by Nicolás Costa-Walder, and her eldest daughter, Steph, played by Lauren Canny. 
Each of these characters is struggling with loving someone whose passion repeatedly puts her at risk of death. It's a difficult reality that has begun to take a toll on the marriage. And in this scene from the film, Marcus finally admits he can't continue living that way. Rebecca speaks first. You said you loved me because I had passion, I had fire. That's what you wanted to live with me. Do you have any idea what it's like to wait for that call? I've, I've been waiting for that call ever since I met you. I've just been, uh, I've been preparing over and over and over and just getting ready. You know, get up middle of the night and you get on a plane, go to some second place and then I find you and then I, I identify your body that's it I take you home tell the kids I uh, watch Lisa crumble to pieces and I try not to let Steph disappear inside herself I'm not going back to that life. I, 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 I can't. I can't live with you anymore. War and conflict photographers are rightfully praised for the work that they do. For decades, they have put their own lives on the line to document and memorialize the most tragic and painful moments of human history. On numerous occasions, they have witnessed atrocities and crimes and exposed them to the world. And for that many have paid the ultimate price. Men and women like Robert Kappa, Dickie Chappelle, Tim Hetherington, Gert Otero, and Chris Hondros each lost their lives doing their jobs. And while they are often remembered for their bravery and their stunning imagery, the experiences of those who love them are often unseen, just, just out of frame. These are people who have likely repeatedly grieved and mourned even before getting that final and dreaded notification. The film not only dives into one photographer's obsession and the price she has to pay to pursue it, but also examines how the people that love her struggle to come to terms with it. In this scene, Rebecca and her daughter have traveled to Africa to visit and document a refugee camp. Alone in their tent, her daughter poses the question as to why her mother does what she does. Why did you start taking pictures of war? Anger. I was really pissed off when I was younger. Photography was was my salvation. Could express my feelings and calm me down. Are you still angry? Oh yes. <laughs> But I've learned to live with it, work with it. What do you mean? When you're in front of all this horror, the suffering, I want 
people to choke on their coffee when they open the paper and see and feel and react. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> You know, Steph, you give me hope. The film is not biographical, but its inspiration comes from director Pope, who is a former photojournalist and also served as one of the writers for the film. The script and the performances and the direction bring forth an honesty that is too often lacking in other movies. That's not to say that the film is not without its flaws. Its portrayal of people of color as little more than background and set pieces is problematic. I I wish there had been at least one characterization that allowed such a person to rise above being relegated to victim or villain. But that being said, I can put those concerns aside because of the sincerity with which the story is told. One Thousand Times Goodnight takes its title from a line from Romeo and Juliet from the famous balcony scene. It's a moment of love and passion, but also longing and the risk of loss. Both the play and the film touch on the fragility that we each face when making the choice to love another. The film illustrates that the risks that photojournalists take not only can be found on the battlefield, but sometimes in the very place they call home. And that's the last frame. Thanks to Peter for spending time with us. You can check out his work by visiting his website at peterturnley.com. And I've also released my latest ebook, Lessons from the Street. It's about some of the bigger mistakes that I've made as a photographer and some of the valuable lessons that I've learned that I think you might find helpful. It's just $7, and you can purchase it on the website or look below in the show notes. And my follow-up to my first book, Chasing the Light, is now available for purchase. It's called Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow. And it teaches you how to create better photographs more consistently, and more importantly, it shows you how to be your own best editor and identify which of your images are not only great, but really understand why. You can order and download the ebook right now or place a pre-order for the soft cover, which comes out in December. You can place your order directly from the Rocky Nook Publisher website at rockynook.com and make sure to use the promo code PORELLO40 to receive a 40% discount off the list price. Check out the website in the show notes below, and if you read the book and like it, please write a review in the Amazon store, whether or not you bought it from there or not, because that's going to be an invaluable resource for me in terms of getting the word out. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up today for the mailing list and receive three copies of my previously published ebooks for free. We love the reviews you write about us in the iTunes store, and I always make it a point of acknowledging them from all over the world. There were none this week, but I would really love to hear from you and what you think about the show. And as I said earlier, you can support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon or make a one-time contribution via PayPal. Thanks to Nick Taro Jr., John Pinstadt, and Bato Prosik for the contributions. Your help is so appreciated. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download The Candid Frame app. It's available for Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today 
and you'll find it where everything else is in the show notes and the website of thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbarianX. And this is IbarianX, and this is The Candid Frame.